This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. It's not a criticism of any of the solutions we use now in emergency management because those are the solutions we have available to us. That's the tech we've had available to us. But when you look at, again, not to be glib, but the spray paint on a map, for instance, and it paints an area red for earthquake damage or blue for water exposure, it's not doing hydrological and hydrodynamic coupling to really say, well, what's it doing to the built environment? Hey, and welcome to EM Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe, speaking. And today, we are talking about artificial intelligence and emergency management. We're going to be discussing what is AI and how it helps EMs do our job. And I'm talking to Greg Brunel from One Concern, which is one of the leading emergency management AI companies out there. Greg has an extensive background in emergency management and public safety, and he's from upstate New York. So, you know, you can't go wrong with a guy from upstate New York, right? So before we get into the interview, we need to talk about books. What book do you think belongs on an emergency manager's bookshelf? And this is the question that we're discussing over at EM Weekly's Facebook group. So if you'd like to get in the discussion, jump on Facebook and join the EM Weekly's Facebook group. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about what book belongs on the emergency manager's bookshelf. And this Thanksgiving coming up, we will be discussing the top 10 books that won the vote over there and why they belong on that uh, bookshelf. And I'd love to have your opinion as well. So... Let's get into the interview. Hey, I'm happy to have uh, Greg Brunel with me here today, and we're going to get into some IA stuff, or AI, I should say, artificial intelligence. And uh, Greg, welcome to EM Weekly. Hey, Todd. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Greg, let's let's kind of start off about you a little bit, since you do have a, an extensive background in emergency management. How did you get into to EM? So, in 1998, we had a really devastating ice storm that knocked out the power to southeast Ontario and upstate New York for over 30 days, a really catastrophic four and a half inches of ice. And I worked closely with those of us that could get into the hospital to help coordinate that response and really found that I had a knack for incident management. And as a result of that, the hospital uh, put me in charge of early version of emergency management in the hospital. And my first mission set was to coordinate us around Y2K. Got involved with that. And then serendipitously, the next year, the county I was living with took the old fire coordinator's office and the old civil defense office and merged it to create a new emergency management office. So I took a gamble, left left the hospital and became deputy director for fire and emergency management for the county overseeing uh, the fire services offered by the county, like the Swift Water Team and Hazmat Team, and uh, coordinating the 911 Center and trying to transform an aging civil defense program into a contemporary all-hazards comprehensive emergency management program. Took that job and started in June 26 of 2001, had my first LEPC meeting, which at that point was really focused on Sarah Title III, and our listeners would know, you know, that's Hazmat. 
was taking that to the all hazards space. And the meeting was scheduled for nine o'clock in the morning on 9-11. The leadership from military base in our county, the Border Patrol and others uh, came to the EOC. And while we were very far removed, very far removed from the physical impacts of 9-11 that day, we were in New York State, we were a border county, we did have a big open military base. We did have to take some protective actions. And of course, like everybody in America, we didn't know what else was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And of course, all of us in emergency management experienced that paradigm shift and that real adoption and creation of Homeland Security, which uh, wound up defining my career for a while. Then you moved from the, the, the public sector and now you've gone into a new venture uh, in, the, in the private sector with doing artificial intelligence. Tell me... A lot. Of, tell me a lot about what your company's doing right now, and who you're working with, because there's some pretty exciting names uh, on your company's roster. We're really fortunate to have an incredible team pulled together, and everybody. A lot of people say that about the organization they work with. We're a small company, um, but rapidly growing, and the brain power here and the star power is just incredible. I joined One Concern two and a half years ago as a senior advisor before it was uh, truly even a, a startup at that point. The vision that Ahmed Wani, our founder, has for global resilience, beginning at that local level and uh, transcending across the globe to truly defining resilience and truly supporting resilience really caught my ear, caught my eye, and caught my heart, and I wanted to be part of this. What, artific- what, what, what One Concern is doing, let me start there, what One Concern is doing is, for the first time ever, bringing real artificial intelligence, and in particular machine learning, directly to emergency management, and all of the public safety, critical infrastructure, and stakeholder groups that support emergency management. So Ahmed experienced several tragedies as he was growing up. He experienced a catastrophic earthquake in Kashmir, where he grew up in 2005, and wound up uh, as as a physical engineer coming to the United States to continue his studies at Stanford. And when he went back in 2013 to get engaged, actually, his family survived, thankfully, a catastrophic flooding event. And there's no exaggeration to the story. The dams that failed flooded his village for more than six days. And during that time, he and his family, with very late-minute, last-minute notice from law enforcement, were able to get up on the roof. And they spent six days in the attic and on the roof of their house while they, you know, the, the deluge continued around their village. They survived that because the family across the street had recently had a wedding and therefore had leftover apples and bread that they were tossing. Unfortunately, that family was lost in that flood. Ahmed had already committed himself to life safety engineering, to bringing contemporary computational power and the emerging technology of artificial intelligence and machine learning to help the first responder and emergency management community to truly build resilience. But obviously, as you can imagine, this reinvigorated and solidified for him that vision. So he created one concern. One concern is to save lives and build resilience. And I joined as an advisor, as I said, a couple of years ago. And after our Series A, um, you know, I joined the company full time uh, doing global engagement, particularly here in North America with the public safety community. We have been so honored to bring in some incredible names and capabilities in this space. First of all, the development team here is, is you know, bar none, some of the most uh, brilliant people working in AI right now. I'm physically right now sitting in our offices in University Ave here in Palo Alto, about five blocks away from Stanford University. We pull from all of the large universities around the globe uh, to support the development side. But technology is only as good as the practical application, right? So 
in order to translate the brilliant algorithms, the brilliant capabilities to practical application, we've been able to recruit and bring onto the team names that everybody knows, like Craig Fugate, former administrator of FEMA for seven and a half years under Mr. Obama and widely recognized as the global expert in emergency management, um, not just recognized, but still to this day, actually to this minute, traveling around the globe speaking on this topic. I had someone once say to me, and I've never known this not to be true, no one cares more or knows more about emergency management than Craig Fugate. And when he learned what we were doing, in particular, the power, and we'll talk more about this later, I'm sure, the power of our application as it relates to mitigation. How can we stop the disasters we can stop and the impacts from them? And how can we lessen the impacts that we can't, you know, for disasters we can't stop? Craig said, I'm on board. I want to be on the, you know, I want to be on this team. And he's not just hanging his name on this company. He's working here at least 50% of the time. So I'm so honored to work with and for Craig most of my work week. We've also brought on Jim Featherstone, former emergency management director for the city of Los Angeles, again, nationally and internationally known expert. Um, a couple of other names that some of us may not be as familiar with, but the work they've done, people know Judith Roden, who, uh, invented the 100 Resilient Cities concept at the Rockefeller Foundation when she was the president there. Judith's on our board. Um, Andrew Ning, who is the godfather of AI in America, artificial intelligence. He invented the Google Brain, one of our senior advisors. It's just really an incredible group of people. And I'm just so honored to bear witness to this emerging capability. So this is great. You guys have a, a really fine team there for sure and so now you're taking the concepts of of what you're putting together uh, and we'll get into that in a second and then you have your team here that's really able to put the practical application of, of what you're putting together now i you know before we had this interview obviously i went on to the one concern uh, webpage and took a look at some of the stuff that you guys are doing and i i know you guys have some stuff in in the uh in the works as well but i know right now it's sort of a flood map if you will and I know you want to do some ad additional uh, maps as well if you want to get into those. So how, how does it work on the practical application? As an emergency manager, how do I make that into my EOC and how does it help me on a daily basis? Absolutely. In fact, just this morning, I, I spent uh, my day today in San Francisco Department of Emergency Management's EOC supporting their exercise there. They're using our solution for that. Uh, they were doing a catastrophic earthquake scenario focused on mass care and just an amazing team in San Francisco. We're so lucky to have them as an early partner. It absolutely, it's a map. Absolutely. That's what, what it needs. It, it's uh, first glance. What are we providing you? You're, you're getting a map. What we're providing is highly accurate, highly reliable, hyper-local damage assessment, predictive analysis. That's machine learning. We'll talk more about that. Predictive analysis of what's going to happen when the ground shakes, the water flows, and very soon if there's a fire. And then all the other hazards to follow on and intermingling these hazards right together to see the uh, cascading consequences, to see the, the uh, first order, second order, tertiary order you know, impacts of a disaster. But whereas you brought up a good point, it's a, it's a flood map, right? And there's a lot of great companies that, are, that can produce a flood map. Some of the technology that we use in emergency management and... You know, having, having you know, been director of operations for New York State Emergency Management, we flood pretty regularly. Um, so I'm familiar with flood maps, right? And some of them, nobody's fault. It's older technology. It's just what we have available to us. I call it blue spray paint on a map, right? Just, <laughs> right. We think the water's going to go. 
all right, well, let's layer in some other stuff and see what's in that blue spray paint that we just put on there. It's not dynamic. It's static, right? What we're doing is because of the, we, we're at the nexus now. All of us are at this nexus. This company in particular is now leveraging that nexus. And that nexus is there's so much data and information out there that we are now able to pull in seamlessly, okay, from literally thousands of disparate data sets from thousands of different databases. Our particular solution relies on both open source as well as proprietary information. So we do spend some money getting that proprietary information. But, you know, in different settings, we all hear about all the data that's collected about us. Well, it's also collected about our cars and our homes and, and our towns and villages and cities. So we pull all of that together, number one. So the amount of data we have that we can pull together, we're at that crossroads, we can do that now. The computational power available to us, right? If we looked at a Moore's law curve and, and how we've gone from, you know, the Atari when I was a kid up to the raspberry Pi now, which, you know, you can buy for $65 and, and have all this computing power, you know, your iPhone has 10 times the computing power of a, of a GPS satellite. I mean, it's just incredible. So we're housed on the AWS cloud. And when our solution runs, it literally lights up millions of servers and that computational power is just unprecedented. The third area that we're at this nexus with is now a maturation and an access to decades of mature science and research in areas like building and engineering, right? Uh, in environmental, how does how does how do the natural environment behave when a disaster happens? And because we've been taking emergency management seriously for the past 30 or 40 years, there's a lot of data out there. Well, what happened to this riverbed when that flash flood came through? So we can go out. In fact, we do at one concern deploy people right after disasters to go in and capture uh, imagery and hyperlocal data to say, did those buildings behave the way our solution predicted uh, and other models predicted? Did, the, did that natural environment behave the way that it was predicted that it would when water flowed across it? And then you apply machine learning that teaches the computer, right, to learn and think more smarter, mm. more smartly in the future. You bring all of this together, and that's why and how we're able to provide that hyperlocal, highly accurate output. So when we say it's just a map, well... Certainly, it's presented in a map-like form, and there's other components to it. I'm happy to walk anybody through our solution at any time, of course, because that's what I do. But what you're getting right now in the jurisdictions where we are deployed, and our seismic solution for earthquake is what's deployed right now in, in several jurisdictions. So right now in the cities where we're deployed, if the ground shakes without any human intervention whatsoever, within 30 minutes, the map will turn on in their EOC, self-populate, and at greater than 80% accuracy, it will display at the sub-block level the level of damage to the buildings. So walking into that EOC, what that emergency operations manager is able to do, right, and that all of and they're all their stakeholders, is immediately have a, a highly accurate hyperlocal shared situational awareness of what's going on in my operating environment. Now, what happens next is you're going to get information. You're going to we're using drones, we're using street cams, we're using. Uh, you're going to get field reports, radio reports from fire trucks and patrol cars just calling in and saying, no, the Brunel household is collapsed, right? Or this uh, tenement building is not collapsed. What, what the EOC operator can then do is go in and it's a very simple user interface, type in and say 123 Main Street, that actually is a collapse. Where machine learning kicks in, it takes that enriched data 
and it recalculates the entire built environment. But it doesn't do that blindly. It's reconsidering those thousands of data elements that it did to generate the first map and applying it across the entire built environment. So with a couple of dozen data elements added over the next, whether it takes you 20 minutes to get that reliable, valid data from the field or a couple of hours, you're moving your accuracy into that upper 80 and lower 90%. I've worked a lot of major disasters. I've had the opportunity to work with incredible teams uh, in New York in particular, but I've also been deployed around the country a little bit. The biggest challenge, one of the biggest challenges we have right after something untoward happens, even if it's a notice event like a hurricane, is trying to figure out how bad is bad. What's going on? So I knew we had tens of thousands of homes touched by the ocean after Hurricane Sandy. This wasn't Katrina. The water didn't come in and stay. So right. we could, you know, this was the water came in and left. How bad was that damage? Were the homes shifted off their foundation? Did the water sit on that for six hours or six days? Um, could families occupy those homes? It took weeks of finally getting, you know, building inspectors out on the ground to do point by point data inspection, you know, homing inspection and building inspection to figure out exactly what were livable structures and what shouldn't be. Um, with a solution like this, you're able to achieve that in many cases in a couple of hours. That's so amazing. Operating environment. That's amazing right there. I mean, that's going to, that's going to make a huge difference in our, in getting the, a proper damage assessment up to, from the local level to the county and from the county to the state and the state to the federal government to really start having resources coming in in a, in a much timely manner, huh? It, it really is. It does. It's not a criticism of any of the solutions we use now in emergency management because those are the solutions we have available to us. That's the tech we've had available to us. But when you look at, again, not to be glib, but the spray paint on a map, for instance, and it paints an area red for earthquake damage or blue for water exposure, it's not doing hydrological and hydrodynamic coupling to really say, well, what's it doing to the built environment? Mm. Not considering how the flow of this water may be changing those rivers and two rivers become one in real time. So you understand it and then validating with dynamic data inputs. So it just doesn't give us that capability right away. And when we want to respond, when our obligation as public safety leaders is to respond with the best tools that we can as fast as we can to save lives, when the public expectation is that we're using the most contemporary solutions to come in and save lives and then alleviate suffering, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's our goal, too, is to save those lives that we can save but alleviate suffering. Suffering here defined as the immediate who needs a place to stay, right. who needs a hot meal, who needs medical care, to the suffering that comes a week later when you're still out of your home or six months later. The... There were many moments after Sandy, to use that example again, that, that were heart-wrenching for me. But it was probably three months after Sandy had been living in this hotel on Long Island, and I came downstairs, and there was a group of dads and moms with their elementary school-age kids standing in the lobby of the hotel. And the local school district had come out with a bus schedule because this was their home now. Hmm. And these parents were figuring out how the bus was going to pick up their kids every day at school. And it was really heart-wrenching for me to, to see how those families had been transformed, those lives had been transformed by this. Now, our solution, because it does run predictive analysis, jurisdictions can run simulations as much as they want and see highly accurately, hyper-local, 
what's going to happen the next time I get four inches of rain or 12 inches of rain or whatever amount you want to do? What's going to happen when I have these earthquakes happen? And they can run hundreds and hundreds of these solutions and see their repetitive loss. And then we've engineered into the solution the ability to point and click and make mitigation, mitigative changes. So you can point and click on a neighborhood and say, I'm going to retrofit these houses hmm. to earthquake standards and then run the simulation again, and it calculates the cost-benefit analysis for you. So you can see how you're buying down your loss. What if I put a berm over here or a subterranean water management solution over there? How does that buy down my impacts against my critical infrastructure, my neighborhoods? Because the best time, obviously, to minimize those impacts is on those days when it's sunny and 72 hours. Right, right. And, you know, I mean, on a side note, too, I mean, obviously, the United States right now is putting a lot of money into mitigation and, and to be able to have a proper plan to be able to spend money wisely. I come from the school of a fiscal conservative guy who says, if I'm going to spend a taxpayer's dollar, I want to be able to justify that to them um, 100%. I don't want to be spending money just because. And I think a tool like this allows us to have a better sense and where we're going to spend money in a proper way to be make sure that our taxpayer's dollars go the furthest. Uh, do you agree with that or am I off base? The rest of that story when we return from our break. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we connect people with the latest technology possible, whether it's mesh networking, augmented reality, or real-time translation, allowing people who need help to find help immediately. Better matters because lives matter. Exercises are a cornerstone of emergency preparedness, but can be costly, time-consuming, and complicated. TTX Vault can ease the exercise planning process with our wide array of tabletop, drill, and functional exercise packages that are fully adjustable. Once you choose the appropriate discipline and emergency scenario, you'll receive the exercise, all HSEEP suggested paperwork pre-filled out, access to our online simulation environment, Chelsea County, USA, and 30 minutes of phone consultation. Get your time back at ttxvault.com. Welcome back from that quick break, and thank you so much for listening to the sponsors, because without them, we couldn't do what we're doing here at Ian Weekly, and hit them up, check them out, say hi, tell them that uh, we sent you. Now for the rest of the story. And I think a tool like this allows us to have a better sense and where we're going to spend money in a proper way to be make sure that our taxpayers' dollars go the furthest. Uh, do you agree with that or am I off base? No, I, I think you're 100% correct. And I think that there's a, you know, most people in our industry are doing a really good job of trying to achieve that exact goal, but we're limited because what we do typically now is, you know, we get our 404 or 406 hazard mitigation money in from FEMA. We ask our sub-jurisdictions if we're at the state level or if we're at the county level, the towns and villages and cities, hey, what are the mitigation projects you want to do? First of all, it's very expensive to identify mitigation projects. Yeah, you're outsourcing that. So the limited dollars you have are going to figuring out what you should do. Well, with our tool, you can get about 80% of the way there figuring out what you should do and what at least what solutions have the greatest return on investment or ROI, probabilistic ROI, to minimize or eliminate the risk to your citizens. So right there, you're saving dollars. The other neat thing that we're able to do is we're able to show those mitigation efforts and the impacts they'll have across the entire natural environment. So after Sandy... After uh, Irene and Lee as well, you know, Governor Cuomo did a phenomenal job with a project called New York Rising. 
and it was uh, bringing in community development block grant disaster recovery dollars, which is a relatively new thing in, in the disaster space, right? We're, we're seeing that allotted by Congress after disasters. Now, it's been around for a while, but we're using it for resilience-focused long-term recovery in many jurisdictions. And it gives, the nice thing about those dollars is it gives a lot of freedom of action to mm-hmm. the elected leaders and to emergency managers. It's not just rebuild it and rebuild the wastewater treatment facility a little bit stronger. It's what do you want to do to support your community and mitigate, right? So with those dollars, um, you know, we had 122 communities in New York State that we were doing mitigative projects, mitigation projects. But it wasn't considering, you know, how does the mitigation project in this town affect the natural disaster in the town next door, right? Right. With a solution now like this, you can look across and say, hey, you could, you know, if you if you fix the shoreline here, you exacerbate or eliminate problems in the next two towns as well. So you can consider across the built environment. Again, it's just this nexus of computing uh, and data power. And, you know, the brilliance of some of the people working behind it have committed their lives now and their careers to creating proprietary uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms that are focused on this. Yeah, I know. Growing up in uh, upstate New York and and on the Hudson River, you know, every year we always had those, uh, you know, the thaw floods coming out and, you know, we knew the Henry Hudson Park was going to flood and we knew that, you know, those areas down there were definitely going to flood, you know, and, but we never knew how bad, you know, Albany had some serious flooding going on because of the ice and and melting. And this is kind of cool that this would be able to predict that and to be able to mitigate those issues prior to and saving uh, those you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the in the recovery costs. This is an amazing piece of product that is created. If you guys have not seen it, really go over to the One Concern uh, website, check it out. There's some demo videos that you can find. They're really cool to look at. How, how do you see getting this product into the EOCs? How, how does it? How's it going to work for you guys? Well, you know, the capability that we're bringing, and and uh, I want to back up in a second to the difference between AI based software solutions versus what we're all familiar with, which is, you know, software for the last 20 years. So what we're doing is, you know, we're working with early adopters of the solution right now to validate the solution, which our models have been validated and we validate after every flood, after every fire, after every earthquake, you know, we validated with over, well over 200 earthquakes around the globe now, dozens of floods. So but we look for early adopters, particularly innovative emergency management programs who are looking to partner with us to identify opportunities to improve the solution as well. Historically with a SaaS, right? A software as a solution. What you're getting there is you're getting a prepackaged solution. So I, I somewhat, you know, as a kind of a quip, I say, you know, for the last 20 years, we've had software salesmen walking in the door saying, you know, here's, here's what we can offer you. And a lot of it's good stuff and it's just older technology. Now it's older technology at mm-hmm. the time, quote cutting edge. A lot of it's Excel spreadsheet based. And if we needed a software to achieve a mission, like an incident management software solution for our EOCs, you know, we do an RFP, we pick the best of the three, typically the least expensive of the three, uh, adopt it, and then we jam our solutions, uh, our operations to fit into that solution's capabilities, right? Contemporary computing power, contemporary software solutions, not just at one concern, but elsewhere. Um, When you're talking about like user interface, like that customization should be pretty simple you know that it should not cost nor should it not be a challenge for a jurisdiction to 
have a user interface that's really meets your needs. That is, you know, it should be really intuitive. If you and I can download an app of a game we've never played right now in 30 seconds on our phones and literally two minutes later understand how to play that, the things that we're doing, you know, whether it's shared situational awareness, mission assignments, logistics management, those are things that, that should be pretty intuitive mm-hmm. through the user interface as well. The other thing, too, is artificial intelligence and machine learning-based solutions are really looking to say to you, what's the challenge you're trying to, you're trying to, to solve, right? What's the question you need answered? That's what AI and ML does, is it answers complex questions. So what AI can do is any decision that a human makes that um, takes us a series of decisions that are less than a second mm-hmm. to ultimately come to that answer, AI can typically automate that. Now, I say that, that gives people a moment of pause because they're like, oh, you know, use robots and EOCs. No, not at all. What we're talking about is identifying what are the comp- what, are, what are the complex questions that an executive has to make in an EOC quickly that rely on disparate data and information streams that can be brought together and then through the power of machine learning give you a highly accurate predictive outcome. So you can say, okay, I do need 14 shelters open and these are the locations where it's most likely that I'm going to have, uh, you know, uh, safe buildings to, to open those shelters. I, when I teach my classes, I tell my students that if you have 80% of the information, that's a good, <laughs> that's a lot of information to make a decision, you know, and this seems like we're getting closer to, uh, to having way more information than we're making decisions on, on now with, with using a product such as uh, one concern. That's a, that's, that is a phenomenal right there. That's a paradigm shift in how we do business, isn't it? It absolutely is. And what we need to work with the emergency management community, and this is something like Mr. Fugate and I and others are working on, is what are those key questions that an executive, an EOC manager, a lead operator, incident commander uh, needs to have answered quickly, that the data and information is out there that we can pull in very quickly to inform that decision faster. So that we're not spending all day after a no notice in particular trying to figure out how bad is bad. Right. What do I need to do right now? And then how can I share that across my, 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 all of my stakeholders, the whole of community to achieve unity of effort as quickly as possible. And I've fortunately, you know, we're talking a lot about what we're doing today. Right. You know, Silicon Valley and artificial intelligence and machine learning, as you can imagine, there's what we can do today. And then I've gotten to, of course, peek behind the curtain and see what we're going to be able to do in two years and five years and beyond. And it's really incredible, the power. You know, this we're on the verge of 5G in this country. That'll start rolling out in some select cities later this year, early next year. But within two or three years, we'll all have 5G on our phones. That's really going to kick off the Internet of Things. There's going to be an enormous amount of censoring data and information out there that is going to require much less of a Wi-Fi pipe, if you will, right, mm-hmm. to get that information in. That's going to inform and give us a much more immersive and realistic understanding of our operating environment and our EOCs in real time. So adopting technology like this really allows us to then inform it better later. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. It really does. Uh, I mean, I think I like technology. I think it's it's great. You know, I always thought about my my daughter, who's she's just she's just getting into kindergarten, and when she was like three, you know, she already knew how to use an i an iPad. She knew how to log on and find the things that she wanted to do and do the games. You know, so I think the generations coming up behind us 
uh, it, this is intuitive for them using technology, understanding how to use it. I mean, you know, using Google Maps, for instance, you know, mm-hmm. when I when I first started out as working in the field as a medic, you know, we had, had to use a Tom's Guide to get everywhere we needed to go, you know, and then now you have GPS and it's going to tell you left, right, right, left, right, and you're in the fastest route and around traffic, you know, so, you know, as we see technology moving forward, even in the field, uh, I can't imagine how, how great it can be moving forward in the, in the EOC, especially with this uh, predictive technology that's there. I mean, right now we're relying upon a GIS to get us, you know, damage assessment, and it's really clumsy, you know, and so we're always uh, predicting more damage in the area than it maybe really is, and we have to go and readjust it, and it becomes a problem later on, but that's what it is. But that GIS doesn't give us the predictive movement of that of that disaster, such as a fire or a flood. You know? GIS is great. I mean, spatial tools are, are fantastic, and I think, I know me personally, right, and I think many of us in emergency management, like, we sort of relate to the game with GIS. Like, we had GIS experts... And, and specialists in our in our EOCs were like, I'm not just a map. <laughs> I, can, I can do more than that, right. you know. Um, and and never really took full advantage. And, and you know, now I think uh, uh, you know more and more people are spatial representation of what's going on is critically important. It's now applying that AI and ML back back into it, so that it's dynamically updating. Mm. So you're pulling in those different data and and and, and information streams, and it's reducing the human level of effort in order to get that information in. So we're not manually, oh, they've got a data set over here. I need somebody's got to type it in. And I appreciate we, you know, people use APIs and what have you to bring in information and set that up ahead of time. But we're on the cost. We, emergency managers as an industry, of having um, such innovative and immersive information in front of us. So the, you know, the example I use, because I teach a lot on AI and ML for public safety, sort of agnostic from one concern, just what is it? What does it mean? What's the future look like? And a couple of the examples I use, and you probably know this. Some people may not remember the 1982 movie War Games. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when, when the, the true story is when Northcom, uh, or, or NORAD rather, excuse me, NORAD went and saw War Games, they came out of them and they said, hey, we don't have a wall of screens like that. We, we need that, right? And we spent, uh, and then, you know, so they did that. But we in emergency management have spent a lot of time building walls of screens, right? And, and that's good. That's helpful. It ensures a level of shared situational awareness around the, all of the stakeholders in the EOC. In the last 10 years or so in particular, it's a lot of you should be. Oh, you and the, the emergency management community, you should be, uh, you should be looking at these traffic camps, you should be looking at these police camps. You should be, and let's back up even further, you should be watching local news. Now you should be watching all the national news on the Weather Channel. And you should now be displaying, now that the Internet's here, you should be displaying uh, the weather maps up there. Now it's getting tougher for us. You should be looking at YouTube and Facebook and, and Twitter and uh, all of the other, so Periscope, all the other social media out there. You should be, you should, now we're adding drones. Right. You should be drone images. Now, the human brain can only absorb so much information at once. I mean, there's literally a limit on what we can bring in, consume, and then make an output. Now, we take pride in our industry that we make very difficult decisions with less than perfect information in highly stressful, less than ideal conditions. Right. That's, if, if you're not cut out to do that, this isn't the industry for you. And that is a, a genuine source of pride and a deserved source of pride for emergency managers. That said, the amount of information and the expectations from our elected leaders, from our public, that we are capturing all of that information and we're consuming it is 100%, right? It's like up there. They're just expecting it. We, 
I'll, I'll try to be agnostic about this and just say I've chased a lot of silly tweets in my disaster response days. They were unfounded mm. just because somebody said, oh, somebody's tweeting about this. It's like, right, but we have no other validation of that. But we better just go and, and put manpower behind uh, investigating its reality. So we're getting overwhelmed and overwhelmed in our EOCs. So our EOCs now look like the war games room with all these big giant screens and all this information. There's really cool stuff that companies are doing now with interactive uh, dashboards. And that's what I call the minority report screen, right. right? Puts the gloves on and he touches it and moves information around. That's awesome. Still a lot of information. What we're moving towards with the application of AI and ML is Tony Stark's lab. Myron. <laughs> That immersive 3D environment, because once we bring in VR at some point, virtual reality, excuse me, you know, you're really immersed in real time. And there is secondary and tertiary analysis going on. One of the cool things we're doing with a couple of our jurisdictions right now is critical infrastructure interdependency, predictive analysis. If you lose X, then Y happens. Now, emergency managers, of course, know first-order effects. Hey, if I lose that substation because it goes underwater, I'm going to lose that hospital and that school, and I know my jurisdiction, and that's going to be a loss of a lot of capability or a little capability, mm -hmm. right? But we know that there are tertiary and beyond-order effects that now we can map, and AI and ML can help say, by the way, if you don't fix X, then that fifth or seventh order effect is going to kick in and become a problem on day three. And here's what else it touches and flag that for you. Does a few things. Doesn't allow us to miss things because we're so focused on the now or the next two hours of now that we're not thinking three days out. And I personally, I think we've all experienced that. Mm -hmm. It also helps us with others make the case for here's why this prioritization of mission assignment is key because this is how this ties into that. And then when we pre-disaster get into mitigation, we can show harden this thing over here because it touches all of these other things. Right. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, for no, for sure. You know, and, and going back to what you're saying regarding what the public expects, and part of it is that they've all played with things that can be helpful, such as like, you know, my son, he has those AI goggles. Right. And, and you're interacting with movies and things like this. And and there's a there's applications that are there that, that he, he can see. And then, you know, so we go, hey, why, why can't we do this with drones to see what's going on in the world? You know, you know, we, we used to have to rely upon, like you said, the local news. And, and uh, now we have uh, the Fire Stick or the Apple TV where we could plug it in and not have to worry about local news and just see footage from people that are out yeah. there doing their thing. You know, so you're right there's And and. The public expects things. Um, we're just talking about, we had a, a fire here locally in, in my jurisdiction where I, where I work. And um, uh, the residents were asking, why didn't we have better fire maps? You know, and we had good maps, you know, go, going back to that. You know, but they, were, they wanted to know why we didn't have better ones because they've seen on the movies where they can, <laughs> you're right, where they can manipulate them and predict where they're moving and stuff like this. And, and, uh, we have to say, well, we're not there yet, but maybe we are there. We, maybe we are there with, with one concern. We're always going to be a few years behind the, uh, behind the movies, right? Cause uh, that's the art of the possible. And then it takes a few years to practically apply it, uh, develop it and apply it. And also, you know, government, to be honest, you know, we, we, 
tend not to be early adopters of technology. Right. You're buying a fleet of cars for your, for your police department. You're not pre-ordering Tesla threes. You know, you're, you're buying crown Vicks, Ford crown Vicks because they're, they're, they're tried, they're tested, they're on somebody's backdrop contract and they're, they're reliable. Right. Um, that's a good thing because in government, one of our, you know, one of our key responsibilities is to be a good steward of the people's money. Mm-hmm. Right. But at the same time, we have to be innovative with the people's money and we have to identify where is the most bang for my buck? Where is my greatest return on investment? And to your point, I think we as a society, we as a species are getting, Oh, it's technology. It's not scary. It's not confusing. I may not understand how it works, but you know, I've been using this thing in my hand for five years, right. 10 years now. So I get it that it's okay, you know, that, that emerging confusing technology is, is, is okay and reliable. Right. Um, and, and we're learning this together. So yeah, that is the hope is that we can become more rapid adopters of emerging technology. So if somebody wanted to get a hold of you to learn more about what you guys are doing over there at One Concern, how could they find you? Well, you know, I'd, I'd love to chat with anybody uh, at any point, and they can email me at Greg at OneConcern.com, or they can call my cell anytime at 518-944-5920, and I'm sure you'll make that available through your website. Mm-hmm. That's 518-944-5920, and also the OneConcern.com website. It's really important to us as a team here. It's critically important to our founder group and our development group that we are interacting regularly and actively with the emergency management and public safety community. That that's the difference, you know, building this ship with them while we're all sailing together, not coming up with a solution and saying, here's the finished product. Here's what we're going to do. It's what are the challenges we have today? What are the challenges we're going to have tomorrow? We have never been before so much an interdependent society. We have never in every aspect of what we do. And in the last 10 years, 13, 14 years now, in emergency management, we're interdependent because we go to each other's disasters. We learn from each other. We go to conferences together. You know, I left government after many years in government uh, five years ago. I I ran an emergency management practice for a large engineering firm and came to One Concern a couple of years ago. And I've had the opportunity now to travel around the country, hands-on working some disasters, conferences, doing small projects, complex projects in counties and cities and states across the country. You know, we're a family in emergency management. It's not that big of a family, (laughs) to be honest. Yeah, oh, absolutely. There are hundreds of us who who do this, but we know each other. We see the same faces. We see the stories. We don't Monday morning quarterback each other. You know, I wasn't there. I didn't make that decision. We want to learn from each other. Tomorrow it's going to be me. And I'm going to want you and my EOC helping me out. And I want you and my, you know, we understand together that the citizens of this country, individuals, family, young, old children, regardless of what is going on in any other aspect of American society right now, nothing pulls us together more so than a disaster. And I have never in my life experienced, whether I was at a single car motor vehicle accident, a house fire 15 years ago, or some of the largest, most complex disasters in this country's history. I've never experienced the camaraderie, the familiarity, and the love and support that comes when you're standing shoulder to shoulder with your brother and sister emergency managers. Yeah. I, I know that that community is there. I believe in the vision of resilience that Ahmed and this team is bringing. 
And I know that together we can truly build a, a resilient world moving forward. Okay. So I got the toughest question of the day for you. What book or books would you give to somebody who's interested in this topic? So the very first book that I read on this was Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning for the Absolute Beginner. <laughs> and I highly recommend it because, uh, and I'm, I cannot think of the author's name, so forgive me. Um, but I downloaded it on my Kindle, read it on a flight. I use it as a little bit of a Bible right now to remind myself of terminology and concepts. That's a that's regardless of whether it's an emergency management or any other industry, you're just learning about AI and ML, which is going to define many industries for us. That's a that's a that's a great that's a great book. I just finished the big one. Oh yeah. And, you know, and I'm forgetting the doctor's name who wrote Dr. that. Dr. Lucy Jones. Lucy Jones, yeah, absolutely. Great speaker. Just read her book. I didn't know about the Central Valley flood back in the eighteen hundreds. Absolutely fascinating. I'm headed to Sacramento to take the tour of the subterranean sellers that are still there. So those are two books that I recommend. And then Judith Roden's book on resilience and achieving global resilience is another one that I, I highly recommend. Is there anything you'd like to say to the EM before we let you go? I just want to thank everybody for work that they're doing out there. I know that, uh, again, thankless job, you know, nobody needs us till they need us and then they really need us. <laughs> I'm so uh, encouraged by the uh, increased use of mutual aid around this country. I think one of the great ways we build local capacity is by using each other during disasters, by bringing other emergency managers into our EOCs, uh, even just for a few days, even to answer the phone, whatever it takes. Um, but it's working together that we built this industry. So I just want to thank everybody for the work they're doing. Well, Greg, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. And uh, I really do appreciate it. And maybe we can get you on here again sometime. Thanks so much, Todd. Appreciate everything. Have a great night. 